0: Hello, hi, and welcome. I'm Emma Gunnar Wardner, and you're listening to The Emma Gunn Show. Each week, I ask my guests to show me the world through their eyes, learning from their experiences, insights, and expertise. If you'd like to watch and listen to this episode ad-free, simply go to www.patreon.com forward slash The Emma Gunn Show now. In this episode, I'm joined by Mike Viking, who makes a welcome return to the podcast, to talk about how we can make our homes happy ones. Mike is one of the world's most influential happiness researchers. He is the CEO of the Happiness Research Institute and a New York Times bestselling author.
1: Just starting to observe when you are in different places, whether that's the home of your friends or family or in public places, How does this place make me feel? Because where you are, the surroundings, your environment, the sign of a place will impact how you feel. So, So start to observe that and then consider, okay, what can I copy from this room where I feel good at home?
0: It's always such a pleasure when people return to the podcast and especially so with this conversation with Mike Viking. I'm excited for you to hear this conversation because Mike's first visit way back in 2019, was a general conversation about happiness, the research he does at his institute, and the shift in the conversation that was happening at the time, all over the world, to find these moments of happiness in times of stress. Then, in 2020, things changed for everyone. The world shut down and life was just different. We all spent much more time in our homes, so it's fitting then that Mike has written a book and has focused a lot of the institute's attention on how to make our homes a happy sanctuary. This isn't interior design, by the way. This is so much more, as Mike explains during our conversation. So if you want to make your home a more welcoming place for you and the people you love, then I think Mike's insights are exactly what you're looking for. So it's all here. Welcome to the show. Well, this is one of my favorite things, listeners, because I am welcoming back a guest to the podcast. It is Mike Viking, who is the CEO of the Happiness Research Institute. But um, what I often do with guests before we start recording is say, would you just mind reminding me what your title is, just in case things have changed? Mike told me that he wrote his own contract. So please, please tell listeners (laughs) what your full title is that you put in your own contract, because this is fantastic.
1: So yeah, my 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 full title—I don't think I've shared this before, but but it it is um, CEO of the Happiness Research Institute, Chief Liking, and Lord of the Dragons. Uh, because why not? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> but
1: usually I just use the CEO of the Happiness Research Institute.
0: Do you know, but it's so good to have that in your back pocket to kind of pull out, <laughs> isn't it? Um, I'm now really reconsidering how I my maybe I need new business cards. I have to think of something as imaginative. Although I think you've, you've bested everyone with that, because that really is fantastic. <laughs> you are joining me again on the show. We had a brilliant conversation last time we saw each other. And we were just reminiscing, listeners, that it was uh, on the top floor, I think it was, of a building in central London. And it was before, it was about nine months before the world fundamentally changed. Right. So we talked about happiness. We talked about your book, Um all about Hooger. Am I saying it right? I always, I wow. have.
1: You nailed it. Well done.
0: <laughs> um, I always worry about uh, pronunciations and what have <laughs> you. But you have a happiness research institute, so you are constantly researching happiness. But I'm guessing that what happened in 2020 and the subsequent 18 months, and obviously the trickle down that we've had from that, has changed. I guess your research fundamentally. Because it's just, the world just went on its head.
1: <clears throat> it hasn't changed what I'm researching because, because, as you say, I mean, I research happiness. I, I, I created the happiness research institute 10 years ago. And I think in the past 10 years and in the next, let's say, 30, 40 years, I'm, I'm going to work with the same three basic questions. I, I try to understand, together with my, my colleagues, how do we measure happiness, and the good life? Secondly, why are some people happier than others? And thirdly, what can we do to improve quality of life? So my career is dedicated to those questions. That's what goes into our reports, our lectures, my books, um, the Happiness Museum that we opened in Copenhagen. So, 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 so that hasn't changed. But of course, I think a lot of us now recognize to a larger extent because of the pandemic, because of a war on European soil, that it's a turbulent world. And um, what can help us there is to sort of distinguish between areas and domains and events that I have control or no control over. Um, and, and, and that is something I've tried to harness uh, for the past uh, couple of years. Um, and, and that was also part of the sort of motivation for this book because we spend the majority of our time indoors. A lot of us spend uh, up to 70% of our time in our homes. That was even before the pandemic. I, I think we spend even more time these days in our homes. Um, and, and to quote one of your countrymen, you know, we shape our buildings and then they shape us. So I was really interested in seeing how can we sort of harness the architecture of happiness? How can we shape, can we shape places that has a positive impact on our well-being? and that was that was the sort of whole yeah motivation for for the new book
0: during the pandemic, did you feel that people were more inquisitive about happiness than they had been before? Do you think it was something that perhaps people not necessarily took for granted but didn't interrogate? And then when when they were suddenly when they had so much more time, they actually had more time to think about, well, what does make me happy?
1: Right. No, I think you're right. I think there is an increased focus on mental health, on happiness from people, but fortunately also from companies. I think more companies these days are recognizing the importance of mental health in caring for your workers, um, understanding that we actually need to make offices nice places to spend time in order for people to come into them. Um, of course, we also saw during the pandemic different sort of Developments for people, Uh, some became less happy uh, during the pandemic for uh, obvious reasons. If they lost their job or if they lost loved ones, became sick. Uh, But we also saw some people actually thrive during the pandemic. Uh, People who had had a long commute, two hours per day uh, to go to work, suddenly, if they were able to work from home, suddenly found more time in their day. So so we saw saw also different developments in terms of of well-being. but yeah, mental health, I think, have had an increased focus uh, in the past couple of years, and I think also an increased focus in the importance of stacking the deck in our favor when it comes to our homes and in our and, and our happiness. Um, and and um, you know that that is 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 also you know part of of the work that we do at the Happiness Research Institute, understanding how can we change the way we design our cities, our streets, our homes, uh, so they have a positive impact on our well-being.
0: Mm. And I really want to come onto that in a, in a second, because the new book, My Hygge Home, is, is really fascinating. And exactly that, how to make your home your happy place. It's about creating a sanctuary, really. But I, I do want to talk to you about mental health now that you've brought it up, because it strikes me sometimes that we are really focused on problems, So if I'm on the train in the morning, say I'm commuting into London and I open up Twitter, I might be fed tweets from magazines saying how to know if you're depressed or how to know if you're burnt out, how to know if you're overwhelmed. I'm probably not going to be fed. And it's not because of the algorithm, because of what I'm looking at. Articles saying, um, here's five things that prove you're happy. Here are five things to say that your mental health is you're doing good things for your mental health. So it's this sort of weird balance, isn't it? We're being signposted a lot to identify the things that might be bringing us down and which i guess is the antithesis of what you do in your
1: work yeah i mean i mean of course i, I deal with the full spectrum in terms of of happiness um but but exactly what you're describing there is what the sort of tradition or school of positive psychology grew out of so you know, uh, people starting asking questions within psychology saying why are we only focusing on sort of the issues? Why are we focusing on the sort of dark sides? Why are we only fo- focusing on negative emotions? Shouldn't we also care about what makes people thrive? What makes people happy? What makes them feel a sense of purpose and meaning in life? And, and the whole sort of happiness research uh, domain grew out of that uh, questioning. And of course, we, we, we deal with... with, with sort of all areas of the spectrum in terms of of happiness. And that's also, I mean, to me, that's also part of life. You know, hopefully we experience good times and happiness and and joy. But from time to time, you know, we also experience unhappiness and worry and stress and anxiousness. Um, Happiness researchers do that too. On Thursday, coming over to London from Copenhagen, I missed my flight. you know, I spent six hours with a one-year-old in the airport. Um, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't the best day ever. Uh, so, 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 so and, and that's part of the human experience, right? We we have good days and we have bad days. And mm. um, I think my my job is to understand how do we create good conditions for us to to thrive. But but in any human life, there's going to be uh, ups and downs.
0: Um, I really do want to talk about that in uh, reference to my own mental health in terms of depression, anxiety, and how it links to my home. We can talk about that in a second. But um, I can confess and confide in you that um, I really felt like I got myself to a, a positive place. I felt like I was in a real groove. And I was really grateful a lot of the time for the fact that I very much could look at myself in the mirror and say, I'm not struggling with my mental health at the moment. If something happens... And had that happened three years ago, it would have floored me. And now it just kind of, it doesn't affect me so much. But recently I've made some quite big changes and unintended, I mean, I wanted to throw a few things in the air and and grow, like with this podcast, for example, I've made a few changes and um, it ended up that I threw more balls in the air than I was really expecting. And being out of that happiness groove that I got myself into has been so unsettling and discombobulating that i what,
1: is, what does discombobulating mean
0: well just meaning that um i've kind of i felt like i lost a sense of of like i'd lost that connection with that calm feeling uh, seeing the happiness i was beginning to see mm-hmm. the badness more and i can rationalize it and say well a few years ago i didn't have anything to lose and i've made these big changes and i've got a lot more to lose this time but the thing I keep coming back to which sort of connects with what you were saying was is that I can say well this is part of the experience and I have to go through this because I don't want to stay the same I want to grow and that involves growing pains and so I'm just going to wear it but coming round to thinking that way it it actually surprised me that it it was as hard as it
1: was. Mm But I think I think that makes a lot of sense, and you know, uh, courage is 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 not, you know, you know, doing necessarily doing stuff that you're comfortable with. It's it, it, it's it's doing stuff that that scares you and and still going ahead with it. Um, and I, I think you said it spot on. It, it's it's how you grow um, as as an individual. Um, and I think also that that's that's quite ingrained in us as humans that we that we push boundaries and we move out of our comfort zone. I think that's how we have developed uh, as as humans. Um, it, it can also be something that that sort of undermines from time to time uh, our unhappiness that we're constantly sort of raising the bar for ourselves um, in in. in in um, happiness research, we often talk about the hedonic treadmill—that um, you know, we we're, we're happy once we achieve a goal, but then soon thereafter we set another goal, um, and and sort of so we, we're constantly raising the bar for for what we need. I think in in order to be to be happy, so I think it's I think it's good to be mindful of that. Uh, I think it's good to be aware of that, and, and knowing there is no one destination. There is no one accomplishment that is going to make you permanently happy.
0: I think that's it. I think for a long time, I thought it was a destination. And I right. thought everyone was further towards it than I was. And even that made me unhappy. It was like, oh, well, I'm I'm already on the back foot. Everyone else is going to get there. And I'm the sad sap who missed that day at school and hasn't figured out how to be happy. Right. And it is an inside job. Um, and also with comfort zones, one of the things I was able to sort of do to myself was say, well, if you had stayed, if you'd kept things the same, the seed of unhappiness had already been planted because, or it wasn't even unhappiness, it was dissatisfaction that would probably grow into unhappiness. So, comfort zones, I would be really interested to know your position on them. I think they're things that we can aspire towards or think are a good place to get to, but actually, a comfort zone can be limiting, would you say?
1: I mean, the the last time we had this chat, I had just written The Art of Making Memories. And if we're interested in a memorable life, from time to time, we have to do stuff that scares us because that's a more memorable experience. Now, uh, two weeks ago, I had the opportunity to sit in a Ferrari in a Formula One car. with uh, he's, a, he's a race car driver, uh, Charles Leclerc. Um, and He had a special Formula One car design. So there's two passengers in the back. And you are wearing sort of fireproof underwear and, of course, a helmet and a suit. And you have a, I think it's called a panic button or a dead man's button. So you have to press it down. If you release it, he knows there's something wrong or you passed out and um, we're going around a racetrack with 300 kilometers an hour and of course I knew I would be scared I'm not into cars, I'm not generally into speed um, but I knew this would be a memorable experience and I think I I felt obliged as a happiness researcher to understand what's the thrill, what's what's the joy of it personally But that I was definitely out of my comfort zone. Oh,
0: do you mind saying that one more time? You just cut out ever so slightly then.
1: Um, The 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 happiness I found in the whole experience was just surviving. Yes. thing, but but (laughs) but I, you know, it 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 was definitely out of my comfort zone. uh, But it was definitely also a memorable experience and something I'm going to remember for the rest of my life. Um. So so yeah, there is comfort in the comfort zone, but there's more memorability. In, in being outside uh, of your comfort zone. And I think also, you know, the, the whole reason why I started the, the Happiness Research Institute also links into to sort of this theme because I got the idea for the Happiness Research Institute 10 years ago. I was working for a think tank on sustainability. I've been there for seven years. It was a stable, well-paying job. It was definitely the comfort zone professionally. And then one evening, I saw a report. I was in the office and I I saw something called the World Happiness Report that had just come out, commissioned by the UN. And there was a ranking of 155 countries, their happiness levels. And Denmark was in first place. And I thought, why is Denmark always doing well in these happiness rankings? There should be somebody exploring this. There should be somebody creating a think tank on happiness in Denmark. And then I thought, maybe I should do that. And I I just couldn't let go of that thought. And I was laying awake at night thinking about all the different sort of studies you could do within this field. But uh, that was definitely out of my comfort zone. I hadn't thought I would start. A company on my own and this was i mean 2012 in the wake of the financial crisis it it was definitely financially uncertain and 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 not in a very sort of comfort sort of zone uh, financially but i I just really wanted to work with this field and also the, the, the the personal side of the story was i had a mentor at the company i was working for who i really looked up to in many ways professionally privately um And he unfortunately got very uh, ill and and died also that year. And my own mother had, had also died when she was 49. He died when he was 49. And I just started to reflect, okay, I have 15 years left at that time until I would be 49. What do you want to do with your 15 years? You want to stay here at this company, which is fine, but you're not passionate about it, or you want to go out of your comfort zone and try and establish this thing that you just you can sense you have a lot of passion about and, and you find a lot of energy in. And in a matter of, of two months, I had quit my stable comfort job and, and started out with what I thought was a good idea and a bad laptop. And th- that is going to be the best decision that I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to make in my career. And yes, it did mean that I had to spend a couple of months on my friend's friends couch you know, when I was struggling to, man, to make ends meet uh, when we were first starting out. But um it it definitely grew me uh, professionally. I'm definitely happier now than I was uh, 10 years ago. Um so 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 sometimes we yeah, you know, being out of our comfort zone, I think has has uh, certainly had some positive effects.
0: That actually brings me on to a question that um it's it's been bugging me recently not bugging me but um a lot of people talk about and i've even done it i've talked about when i had a sales job in my early 20s and i had an epiphany when i went to new york i don't want to spend the rest of my life doing sales so i'm going to go and i'm going to train and become a journalist and i was too late to do it all of the things were stacked against me and i've he- i hear a lot of these stories of i went from the thing that was safe or was mundane and wasn't making me happy but Maybe paid me a lot of money or I was comfortable and I took the risk and I jumped. And I think sometimes we can tell that story and it's like, yay. But that day one, that day one is really terrifying because ultimately, yes, okay, that's part of it. But the other part of it is monetizing it in the sense of you have to put a roof over your head, you have to keep yourself safe and warm, which again brings us neatly into what we're going to be talking about in a second. And so that's a brilliant story, and I absolutely love it. But I would, if you wouldn't mind, I would love you to expand on well, what was that? Was there a business plan? What were your expectations for? I know I have to do this research, but I also know that I have to make a living.
1: There was no business plan. I had I hadn't had a single conversation with a potential client. I hadn't had a single conversation with a potential uh, researcher. There was just a lot of interest and desire to research this field um, and unfortunately and, and the, the gamble paid off um, but I've also had other gambles that didn't pay off uh, when I was in my early 20s I went to Spain for three months to write a book and I did finish the book and it's terrible <laughs> um, but you know I, I still had you know three quite memorable months in spain uh in a small village memories um, again
0: memories Memories again <laughs>
1: memories again um so i mean and i think it's also later in life that you discover and realize that, that some of the failures you had earlier in life can actually be turned into a, a positive thing now um i mean some of the the, the Weird jobs and, and and stuff that I've done in the past have also helped me do what I do now. Um, so I think it's I think like like Steve Jobs said in his sort of famous commencement speech. It's it's later in life you are able to connect the dots that you created earlier in life. Um, and and I, as the years go by, I see that uh, I, I see the truth in that. So I think it's it's it, you know early in life you know try out stuff you know experiment um fail and then later in life you will be able to convert those failures into experience that actually helps you achieve some of the goals that you set for yourself
0: i think that's brilliant advice for anyone who's listening to this podcast who maybe is in their 20s or at the beginning of a career and is petrified or terrified of putting a foot wrong because i know i was i'm sure lots of people listening can relate to this actually you don't even need to be in your 20s and 30s just starting out on anything actually embracing the failures so that when they do when you do fall flat on your face you get up laughing, knowing that that's just that's a big lesson and what's on the other side of it can only be better than what where you were
1: before. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And also coming back to your, your other question, sort of financially, I, I had I mean I had lived frugally when I was working and, and, and saved up a, a bit of money and and I, I knew I could start the company and do that for uh, at least a year uh, without sending the first invoice. Um, and, and that gave me a bit of sort of security in terms of, okay, let's try it out. The worst thing, you know, I'll have to find a job in, in a year's time. Uh, I think for me, the risk, the bigger risk was dreaming about it, not doing it, and then perhaps seeing somebody else run with that dream and achieve it. So I, I just I just really wanted to work with this field. Um, so 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 that was that was a scarier scenario for me not having a go at at what I thought would be an amazing uh, journey.
0: Yeah, it's that interrogation, isn't it? It's asking yourself those questions. A friend of mine recently was offered an incredible job, but was very on the fence about it. like on paper, amazing, but in real life. There were things that were getting in uh, the way of her decision-making. And then we had a glass of wine and I said, okay, you see the announcement go up that the job has been taken and it's not you. How do you feel? And she just pulled out her phone and wrote back and accepted the role because she said that was what I needed to hear. I There was something I didn't want anyone else to have it. That's for damn sure. I knew I wanted it. So uh, it can be interesting just to flip those perspectives. Yeah. So my hygge home Make how to make your home your happy place. Um I'll tell you my little story about um home that actually, when I started opening the pages of the book, I felt quite um, transported back to a dark place because um it re- it made me realize quite I had depression and anxiety, and the flat that I was living in at the time was was dark. And when I think back to those memories, those bad memories. I actually, I can feel the darkness and I can feel it being quite enclosed. And when I was getting better and doing therapy and what have you, I wanted to move. And one of my non-negotiables was light, 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 light. So, I mean, you can see behind me, that's floor to ceiling windows I've got right there (laughs) because that was a non-negotiable. And I obviously I've read the odd thing. But it was more of an instinctive thing of, I need light. I need to see light. I need there to be light. And that really is something that you explore in the book as well, isn't it? About the the different types of light that you can curate to actually create a happy mind, which I totally believe in.
1: It's a super relevant example. Um, and, and you're not alone. I mean, we, we, we can see the World Health Organizations have done uh, studies that show if you have inadequate daylight in your home, you are more likely, or you're more at risk of becoming depressed. And I think, like you, a lot of us know it intuitively. But I think it's really important also that we get data on it and studies that that also help policymakers and and people in the building industry understand the importance of of daylight. Um, and we can see also in in, in Denmark. Um, People who have access to daylight who work outside are less likely to become depressed. We see in the, the largest hospital in Denmark when people are uh, uh, submitted with depression at the hospital. Um, there is a difference on how long they stay there, depending on whether they're in south-facing or north-facing rooms. So, so we are northern country. So naturally we have more daylight in south-facing rooms than north-facing rooms. And at the Ries Hospital, which is the main hospital in, in Copenhagen, uh, there's a, a study there that showed that on average, patients in the south-facing room spend 29 days, in the north-facing room, they spend 59 days. So now they're doing experiments with um, uh, artificial light, that that's sort of uh, dyna- dynamic that follows the natural light of, of the day. So I think, I think it's an overlooked area in mental health Um, and, and I think a lot of us perhaps take it a little bit too much for, for granted and, and, and lighting is, is tremendously important in, in your home, in how it sets the atmosphere. Um, and it's, it's also something that, that, you know, is, 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 is quite achievable and, and sort of a, a simple hack. So, so in my room, I basically just act like a cat and follow the light around. Right. So in the morning I have, I have great lighting at my work desk. Uh, that is that is facing the uh, the street side of the house. And in the afternoon, uh, I need to go to the other side of the house and further up uh, where there's 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 better lighting. so so daylight tremendously important. Um, and, and that was in in part the seed that planted the idea for the book combined with um, a story I heard from a Canadian reader who had read my first book uh, around Hugo. Uh, I think I also share this in the book, but he, he read about hygge and, and lighting is a big part of hygge and, and candles are tremendously important because they give up this nice, soft, warm light that hygge is all about. And so, so this Canadian guy, he went out and he bought some candle holders and he started to light candles for dinner at home with his family. And they, him and his wife, they have three teenage sons. So when their dad, they started to light candles for dinner, the boys, they started to tease their dad, right? So dad, what's going on? You know, well, you want to have some romantic time with mom? Should we leave? <laughs> uh, but he, he told me eventually the boys, they started to light candles for dinner and it became this ritual of food and fire that brought their family together. And I was really happy that he told me their family dinners now last 20 minutes longer. Because the candles, the atmosphere changes the boy's mood. Now they're in a storytelling mood. Instead of just sitting down and eating their food as fast as they can, they sit down, they sip their wine, they talk about their day. And I thought, isn't it interesting that a simple change, a simple design hack, like a candle, changes how a family interacts? What else can we do that has positive impact on our well-being when it comes to design we shape our homes, and then they impact how we feel and how we act. We know that from a lot of studies. I mean, there's the the impact of daylight on your mental health. Um, There's also a really cool study uh, conducted here in the UK, the the UK Millennial Cohort Study, that have followed kids that were born around the year 2000 and followed them in their childhood and now into uh, adulthood. And they can see from that study, 50% of the kids when they are seven, have a TV in their bedroom. Four years later, when the kids are 11, the 50% that had a TV in their bedroom are 25% more likely to be obese. So it's a simple thing like a, a, a TV. And, and what other things I started to, to say, can we can we do that st- stack the deck in our favor when it comes to happiness? What other design hacks can we harness uh so so we get a benefit of an environment that actually helps us make the choices we want to make and have a positive impact on our well being.
0: I was interested so that, that,
1: I... that is I was no, 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 just say that's what the book is about. <laughs>
0: so I was interested when I saw the link between uh children having a television in their bedroom and obesity and then an implied link to perhaps that would impact their happiness because that's quite, I mean, let's face it, that's quite controversial to suggest that obesity leads to being unhappy. Uh, Would you, would you say that is a link and I shouldn't call it controversial?
1: No, I, I, I haven't seen studies that suggest that link. Um, It's, it's very much, I think, a matter of social comparisons um, so it, 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 all comes down to how does the kid feel about him or herself? Um, so, so no, there's no necessarily mental, uh, or link between that physical health and, 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 and mental health as, as, as far as I am aware of, uh, but of course there are sort of physical consequences uh, in terms of physical health.
0: Okay. So I guess, I guess that the television is making that child more sedentary so that they're not moving around as much or I mean the thing is television in the bedroom exactly. how can you compare that to a device that they're holding all the time because that that has an impact too I would imagine
1: yeah and I think you know this was this was year, kids brought up around the year 2000 I think we would see a different result today because devices are now much more common uh, mm-hmm. in, in your hand than they were uh, in in the early two thousands, um, but. Another sort of core theme in the book is how do we turn a house into a home? And and that is actually a question that had been asked in the UK. And I thought it was really interesting to see that there is no furniture, there's no things, there's no stuff mentioned in the top five. So the first item you see on the list is on seventh place. It's a sofa. Uh, but the first thing people mention that turns a house into a home is happiness, it's love, it's a sense of belonging, and then it's the sound of laughter, having friends and family over for dinner, and the smell of good food cooking. And, and the more I get into my sort of research and, and, and happiness in general, the more I see that also being a core question, how do we connect better with loved ones? family, friends, and also with neighbors. Uh, and that, that's also a quite central theme in the book. And of course, the, the, the Canadian family example is, is one element, you know, adding a candlelight can, can impact how long a family dinner lasts. Um, I really like the, uh, the design hack of, of serving artichokes from time to time, because it has a really go, good prep time to eating time or eating time to prep time ratio because I can prepare artichokes in one minute, I get the water boiling, add salt, half a lemon, and the artichokes then cook for uh, 40 minutes. But it takes a long time to eat the artichokes, right? Because you have to peel off each leaf individually. Um, so I'm, I'm a nerdy numbers guy. So I, of course, have measured how long our family dinners on average are. And when we have artichokes, they are 12 minutes longer. And <laughs> uh, so it, give, it gives me a, a long dinner, and, and and little prep time, so so stuff like that. I'm really interested in uh, little little design hacks, and also now I, I know, uh, you know, at least in Denmark, but I, I know also in the UK, uh, prices of food are rising uh, with inflation going up. Um, so how can we eat better in a sort of so- social way, but also sort of you know budget friendly way? Um, And I know that the average UK household throw out 700 pounds worth of food each year. And that was pre-pandemic prices. So what I do at home is I have a, a retirement shelf or a hospice shelf in my fridge. So on that shelf are food I need to eat or we need to eat in the next day or two. So it's not... Hidden behind the jam on the top shelf, it's it's not somewhere in a drawer. It's it's the first thing I see when I open the fridge. Okay, those red peppers, uh, that salmon. We need to finish that in in the next lunch or in the, in, in the next dinner. So I work those ingredients in, and that helps us uh, really reduce uh, food waste. So I think that that's another sort of simple hack. And and to me, hygge is about achieving the good life on on a low budget. So it's. It's tips like that that I'm trying to convey.
0: See, that's just making me think of the person who comes home, crappy day at work, the boss has been a bit of a pain. You open the fridge, you're not looking to be sustainable. You're not looking to save food. You are looking to be comforted. And sometimes the perishables, the vegetables, aren't going to do the job. But that, I mean, one can switch the the way they think about those things, can't they? And I think... It is about what you attach your happiness to, so yeah. When I read that, I just kind of thought, "Oh, I wonder, I understand that, and I love it." But is is that shelf going to win over the bad day that I've had for the last nine hours?
1: Not necessarily, but but it will help you on some days, right? Um, it it will give you a better chance of utilizing those groceries uh, than if you were spreading them out on different shelves and 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 having you know the the red peppers behind the strawberry jam on the top shelf—that uh, you find two weeks from now—and then you have to clean that shelf. Uh, so, so, so it's it's giving yourself better odds of, of, of achieving what you want to achieve. To me, it's also you know making life a little easier. So, so on my phone, I always have a list of what I have in my freezer because you, you probably know you 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 have some leftover, let's say Bolognese and. You put it in a bag or in a container, and you put it in the fridge. And you think, I know this is bolognese. I will know this is bolognese the next time I see it. But three months from now, you have added three other bags with brown stuff in it, and you don't know what is what, and you end up throwing it all. Off. But but I can know. I can now go on my phone, and I can say, okay, in my freezer at home, we have some we have some rosé, a leftover bottle that we froze down, and now I can use that in a stew at some point. There's some chicken. There's some red curry and some peas, and there's some gooseberries and other stuff. But but the red curry, the peas, and the chicken, I can already use that in a new curry, right? Mm-hmm. So actually, when we come home to Copenhagen, I actually don't need to go shopping because we already have everything we need for dinner that night, and that just makes life a little easier, especially when i are coming home from the airport with a one-year-old. Okay. So it's it's stuff like that 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 I think we can we can we can do little things that just helps us live better easier
0: mm. now you've mentioned that the fact that prices are going up in the uk but i wanted to ask you about a particular i've been told this is a quirk of mine i don't it doesn't feel like a quirk to me it comes, <laughs> it comes back to light so as part of the podcast I, i've been doing uh this thing called 12 habits and it's basically trying to try something out for a month live a certain way see try it on see how it works and um a couple of months ago, I woke up every day at 5am because it was just a little bit early. It's just put a little bit of a pinch on the idea of an early start. And it was, it took about two weeks to get into it. But I think I did it in July where when it's the sun is up. And I have to be honest, Mike, I freaking love it. And actually I get up at 5am every day now still. It actually helps me feel as though I've got a really good head start on the day. So I never feel overwhelmed, but that's um, another story. But we have moved on. And when I wake up now at 5am, it is pitch black and it Mm -hmm. is probably pitch black until about 6.45 ish. It has really changed. And when I wake up, a bedside table light goes on, but no other light. So when I go into my living room, I'll put on the TV and I will start working out, but there is no light on anywhere. Because for me, if I put the lights on, I've never, I don't think, I probably in the time I've lived in this uh, flat, which is over three years now, just after I saw you, um, I think I've had the main lights on in the living room maybe four times. Okay. <laughs> I always have to have low light. Right. And this is just my way. Is that a quirk or is that actually quite a good idea?
1: I don't think it's a quirk. I think it's, it's just your habit. And, and it's a lovely quirk if it is a quirk. <laughs> but listen, but, but 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 you're hammering on on the point that I'm I'm also trying to make in the book is that lighting matters. We we talked about the importance of daylight in terms of your mental health. We talked about you know the Canadian family with the candles for dinner, but there's also studies that have been done in Danish primary schools that show that the lighting in the room affects how the kids act and how noisy they are. So in some rooms they have a sort of white. Over, overhead uniform lights, harsh, bright. And in some rooms, they have, like you had in the morning, <laughs> uh, uh, perhaps not in the schoolroom bedside uh, lamps, but, but, but table lamps, and an overhead or a downward-facing light on the table. Mm. So what the teachers describe is that that light facing down on the table brings the kid up to the table instead of rolling around crazy on the floors. Um, and gives it a more homey, calming atmosphere. And they, they measured the noise levels on decibels in the different classrooms. And with the lighting, with the with the pockets of light, the pools of light, the islands of light rooms, the noise reduction is up to six decibels. And I didn't know what that was. But that means going from the noise level you have when you're having a conversation in a restaurant to the conversation you have at home. So it's quite significant. So, 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 yes, lighting matters. It 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 impacts how we feel. It impacts how we act. Um, So I don't think it's a quirk. I think it's it's. I think it's a good idea.
0: I just find (laughs) overhead lighting incredibly aggressive, especially in the morning. It reminds me of getting up in the middle of the night as a kid to get up to go to the airport or something, or, or being pulled out of a routine for a reason. So yeah, it's. There is just particularly as you've seen floor-to-ceiling windows i will let the light come up from outside and i love that i <laughs> really enjoy it
1: yeah and and, and and in denmark we we have an expression you know if you have that sort of the light you you described there the the, the bedside table light or if you have candles or something not the white harsh uniform light because the the first kind of lighting makes people look nicer. We call it looking grotto fabulous. So so it's it's also good for our sort of self-confidence, I
0: think. <laughs> oh god, maybe it has more to do with my vanity than anything else, than my mood. Um the other thing that I adore in my home, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm particularly um I don't have I'm not one of these people who follows lots of interior accounts and goes, oh, that design is fantastic. I, I like what I like and I'm not really that discerning. But I think if there were two things that if you took them out of my living room now they would both be as impactful to how the room looked the first is the sofa which we know is in that top 10 on that list the second is all my plants
1: Mm. yeah um i would agree i I think that's one of the simplest quickest perhaps cheapest way we can quickly transform our homes and and sort of increase the figure factor is to add plants add, Mm. add plants and and Again, several studies show the positive impact of nature or access to nature or plants to your both physical and mental health. Um, You have really good studies in the UK actually on happiness. There is a a cool study called Mappiness where people have been uh, using their phone and they're asked one, two or three times per day how happy they are right now. And we would follow you and 10,000 of your, your listeners um, over a period of time, and then we would see. Okay, every time Emma is in nature, she's happier than when she's in an urban environment. You're also happier on Fridays and Saturdays than you are on Mondays and Tuesdays, by the way, but <laughs> for for uh, for unsurprising reasons. But, yeah. but um, so 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 we can see when people are in green areas, when they're in the countryside, they're typically happier. And again, there's also a, a been experiments or studies conducted in hospitals. People recover quicker. Quickly, is that a word? No.
0: <laughs> Let's make it one. <laughs> I <laughs> like
1: people it. <laughs> people recover quicker from, from uh, surgery uh, when when they have a view of, of green areas compared to, uh, to 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 urban. Um, so the whole biophilia uh, research area, I think, is is really really interesting and something I think we can also harness when we are when we are designing our, our homes. But I think you also you're I think you're hitting on an important point too in terms of saying not so much into design and, and sort of latest trends. And that's also my hope with this book that it's less about furniture and more about how we interact with the people that are sitting in that furniture. Um I I, re- I really like the sort of the a principle in the book I called the extra chair principle that I, I, I learned about when a few years ago we were, we were studying um, groups of young people and their their well-being. And the young people were engaged in different uh, after-school activities. They were singing and they were dancing and they were you know, playing sports. And, and, and some of the, the pupils we followed, they were engaged in... Something called live-action role-playing games, so Dungeons and Dragons, you know, swords in the forest, and orcs and elves and whatnot. And we followed them over time, and we looked at their, you know, sense of connection, self-esteem, happiness levels, um, and we could just see that the, the kids involved in the live-action role-playing games were developing really well. Um, a stronger sense of of connection, uh, feeling that they had good friends, um, and then then we started to see what what is it that this group of organizers are doing right, and we 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 understood that when they organized meetings and had the kids over to plan these events, um, they had some principles like the extra chair principle, which was when let's say you and I. Um, to make sure there is an extra. Oh, I
0: lost you for a second there. After All the right. extra chair thing, let's say right. you and I.
1: Yeah. So, so let's say you and I were sitting at a table, and you and I then have the responsibility to make sure there is an extra empty chair at the table. So it's easy for somebody to join the conversation. And it was so ingrained in their culture and the way they, they sort of organized social events. Also, if, if three people, you and I, and a third person, is standing talking, they would open up, instead of being sort of a close triangle, they would open up how we were standing so it would be easy for a fourth person to enter that circle. Mm. And, and, and this was sort of core in, in the social interaction with the kids. So it was, a, it, it was an it was a environment that was very inclusive. And I think that, that's a wonderful principle to, to keep in mind when we are in a, a, a social setting. So to me, that's also what design is about, it's not just about the, the sort of colors on the wall, uh, but it, it's how we we design social experiences for our, our friends and family as well.
0: Yeah, and I have to say, I, I'd be lying if I said that when I uh, was going through the book, I, I didn't have um, a bit of a revelation about my own life and my own home, which is that my home has never been social. Growing up at the family home, was very much about a retreat from from my father from work for my mother for work and whatever she was doing and for my brother and I for school and whatever it wasn't somewhere where we hosted a lot that really is quite foreign to us if i'm being honest this idea of having people around. we don't have extended family or anything like that and when i was reading the book i was like oh god okay yeah it's really it, it if i invite someone over it's not casual it's actually quite a big deal for me because it's so far removed from my normal, if you like. Mm. And I was realising, I think this is something that I need to make a much bigger effort to do, is actually to have people here, because I had a friend here on Sunday and it was absolutely lovely. We just sit on the sofa drinking tea, have a good old chat. But basically what I'm saying is, in looking at the book and how to make your your home your happy place, I realise I don't instinctively do one of the most fundamental things that you encourage, which is invite people in?
1: Mm. That, I mean, I think that's, that's part of it. But it, homes are also, I think, first and foremost, a place where we retreat. It's also to cater for a very human need of privacy. And I think we, we all need that. I think we need, we need to recharge. We need to re-energize. And we do that in our homes. And so, so connection is important. Being social, social is important, but but we also really need to understand the need for for our sort of introverted side. Uh, I, I need that, um, and, and I think that's that's a sort of a, a common human uh, need. So 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 don't feel bad about that. And also, yes, it, it can be sometimes uh, daunting to invite people over. Um, what I sometimes like to do is—is is I like to involve people in the cooking process. So I'm not, so I'm not responsible for getting all the, the, the dishes ready and and everything is is perfect uh, at at the right time, and and I think that also makes it more hyggelly. It mm-hmm. It's the working together, and we have something with it to do with our hands, and, and and we're helping each other out, and. What I did uh, a few years back was also we, we had a, a a cooking club where we would meet and cook together. So we would have a common, th- we would have a theme, mm. and then everybody would bring ingredients to cook under that theme. And um, one evening we chose the theme of sausages, and everybody <laughs> had brought ingredients to make sausages. And I had made sure that we we um, had some casings and we were mincing the meat. And somebody had brought. Uh, apple for the sausages and somebody had tried to get camel meat and wasn't successful and a lot of different sort of variations anyways so we, we were cooking we were mincing the meat and we were we were sort of uh, uh, stuffing the sausages and boiling them and, and 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 frying them and whatnot and here we are we have six people we've spent three hours cooking sausages we sit down at the table and we have these mountains of sausages and we start eating and the taste was absolutely horrible. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's been it's been half a decade, and we still talk about what went wrong with the sausage <laughs> disaster of 2017. <laughs> the great so and I think <laughs> I but it, you know again it was a memorable night and mm-hmm. um, you know we had a good time and um Maybe we left a little hung- hungry, but I think that's fine from time to time. So I think that that's that's a way, and we were all responsible for the for for the for the horrible food. So I think <laughs> that's also a way to take the pressure of a, a dinner party. That let's do this together and uh, and screw up together, or or make a successful feast.
0: Yeah, I always learn a lot from you, Mike, and I do take away and I try to put things into action. But one thing that won't be leaving my inbox or my outbox is an email saying sausage party at mine, (laughs) because it will definitely get the wrong impression. (laughs) I will just live vicariously through your great sausage disaster. (laughs) Um, Okay, I do want to tap into privacy a bit, Mm -hmm. I guess, because it really speaks to my own experience and maybe some listeners will will uh identify with this too, because the thing I said about retreating, that was it's very easy to isolate yourself. And I think there are some there are some times where you do it where you're recharging, and there are other times when you do it like I did it, where you begin to actually just cut yourself off from the world at large. And I don't know if you have any insights into where that line gets blurred and how to stay on the right side of it so that you're just recharging and you're not hiding. I definitely have a propensity for the latter.
1: Oh, it, it, it is a trigger balance, but I think it, it, we have to start with understanding that we have both needs uh, from time to time. I think we have a need to be social and to connect with other people in a sense to belong. And I think a lot of us, even in in the bigger cities, are seeking that sort of village feeling where we know the first name of our neighbors and are able to borrow a cup of sugar when we need that. But I think we all also have the basic need of connecting with ourselves and being alone and not getting additional input. Recently, we did a study of row houses, in Denmark and the UK, uh, we focused on that typology. And at the Happiness Research Institute. And and in Copenhagen, one of the most popular areas you can live is something called, and you don't attempt to pronounce this word because you know you'll risk something. It's it's called co- it's called mm. But it, it literally means the potato rose. But it's it's 11 streets in central Copenhagen uh, of terraced houses. Um, I think they have the highest share of architects in Copenhagen living there. So they're quite coveted. And what is interesting about those homes is they have a tiny front yard, front garden. And that's where people go when they want to sort of be social. It's where they go for a cup of coffee, read the paper, say hi to their neighbors. And that's where you chat with the other people on the street. They also have a backyard. And being terraced houses, they are still really close to their neighbors in the backyard. In a lot of the gardens, backyards, you can still see the other neighbors. But there, there is a consensus, a culture that you don't talk to each other in the backyards. You might be able to see each other, but we ignore each other in the backyard. So that's where they go for privacy. And I think it's interesting. You have an entire neighborhood where that's the, that's the consensus, this is what we do because we all have this need to be outside in our personal space. Mm. So I think, I think it's a common uh, human thing. Not all, all of us have that luxury, um, but I think, I think we need to understand that we have that need. Um, some people are uh, living in a single household, then it's easier. And some people are living in families or, or in a couple and, and sometimes, even though we love the other person, we, we also have that need to retreat. Um, some people then seek the kitchen or listen to pod- podcasts or something. But, but I think we need to understand that we have uh, that need. And perhaps we need a you know conversation with the partner. It's not that I just love you. But when I get home from work, I need an hour where I'm just by myself, not talking, not sort of engaging. Um so, so the, I think there is sometimes a design opportunity in terms of how we we design our homes or what we have in terms of outdoor indoor space. But sometimes it could also be a cultural thing, like the sort of policies we set up in terms of <laughs> what kind of what 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 things do I need when I get home from work, for instance.
0: Yeah. Now, I've already said that I don't follow interiors accounts. Some of my friends, Mike, are obsessed, and they will tell you about the history of a certain type of sofa design or. Why these sorts of curtains? I actually st- went away with a friend recently and she spent quite a lot of time looking at the curtains and how they were fitted. And she's like, oh, I don't wonder wonder if I could do that in mine. And I, that's not, that's not where I am, but I tell you what I do follow. And I do think this is a fairly recent sort of upsurge in these sorts of accounts. And definitely with lockdown, they really um, had a bit of a growth spurt. And that is home organization.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I have a carpet rake and it makes me very very happy. Like when I <laughs> so many quirks I've shared with you. When I leave my bedroom in the morning, when I'm dressed and then I won't be going back into the bedroom probably until much later on in the day, I rake myself out so that my first step into the room in the <laughs> evening is basically like on fresh carpet. And I do the same with this office. When I leave this office, uh, I just rake it just so that when I open the door tomorrow it's like it's fresh and brand new.
1: Right. That's Listen, so important to me. It's not, I'm, I'm Scandinavian and, you know, it's it's the love of, you know, of fresh snow, right? With no footsteps uh, on it. So I, I get it. I completely get it. Um, and also, uh, yeah, I told you, right, we opened a happiness museum in, in Copenhagen. Um a couple of years ago. And, and my favorite room in the museum is um, where we have asked people to write down on post-its what happiness is to them. And uh, there's a lot of, of different things and there's also a lot of patterns. But then there's one person who wrote that happiness is a good quality lawnmower and a big lawn to mow. And I think he gets <laughs> the same sort of sense of satisfaction with sort of seeing, like you're seeing with the carpet, sort of the the, the progress, the sort of, you know, the, the calmness uh so i i don't think you are alone in that one <laughs> but we can call it a quirk we can call that one a quirk
0: no i like it but but it's this sense of um I, I really spend a lot of time especially on tiktok since i've discovered tiktok like people getting the clear um compartments the drawers that they then put into a cupboard with a little drawer and they've got these little labels on saying dishwasher tablets washing tablets or whatever it is and Right. It just, it just, everything looks so brand new and organized. And I was like, why is, why am I obsessed with this? Why do I suddenly want to buy a load of Perspex drawers and put things in? And I guess it's this sense of, well, there's less thinking that I have to do at home right. because all the thinking has been done for me. It's one big effort, isn't it? To do a bit of a clear out and put things away and leave them where you know that they'll always be. So I guess it kind of means that you need less brain usage to just kind of navigate your space but there's also something incredibly comfortable about knowing you've got all of those things. Has that shown up in the research in terms of hugger and home?
1: I think it has because a couple of years ago we did a huge study at the Happiness Research Institute across ten European countries with thirteen thousand homes, I think it was, and we looked at, you know, how important homes are for your happiness, um, and found yes, they are. Uh, and, and we also looked at what are the biggest barriers for people being happy with their homes. And one of the biggest barriers was that it felt cluttered. So if it feels spacious, if it, if it is decluttered, then people were happier uh, with their homes. Um, so so and, and I remember a few years ago, there, were, there was also a lot of hype around Marie Kondo mm. that sort of talked about sort of decluttering the home. Um, I think perhaps we can also do a little bit better and say, okay, what, what can we do to pre-plot? What can we do not to bring basically crap into our homes <laughs> that, that we don't need? Uh, and, and and I think there's also different strategies for that. For example, you know, if you want to bring something into your home, you have to bring something out of your home first uh, instead of just throwing one more in, and more stuff in, right?
0: One in, one out like any good bouncer. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> So, but 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 I don't think you're alone in that one. I I I, uh, I mean I listen. I have a list on my phone, what's in my freezer, so I I, I have to like <laughs> to know what is what is where, right? Um. So uh, you're not alone.
0: No, but it does seem to be something that is not only aspirational because it looks really nice, but it has that link to the way that it makes you feel, which struck me as being quite interesting. I definitely I think there's something in the book as well. That I wanted you to expand on about space and is this right space and size yeah so I i can think of the amount of time I've lived in some very 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 small spaces in my life and there's constantly a yearning of like just being able to spread my wings or just have a bit more space and it can even feel like that sometimes here and it requires a declutter and so it but it is that interesting thing isn't it like the clutter can actually feel claustrophobic yeah even though you don't necessarily put the link between the stuff that surrounds you being the thing that's making you feel confined.
1: Right. And, and and you're exactly right. And and that was actually from the same study I talked about before, the, the one across 10 countries with 13,000 people. We saw that size doesn't predict whether people are happy with their homes, but the sense of spaciousness does. So it's not the actual square meters or square footage, but it's how the place feels. Mm. So So... If you can declutter, if you can create um, a, a a larger sense of space, that seems to have a positive impact on 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 your happiness with your home and your all, overall uh, well being. So yeah, decluttering, pre cluttering, um, I think that's a good first step if if people want to achieve uh, a, a more huge home, but also a, a happier home.
0: Well, that was going to be my uh, as as the t- our time together draws to an end. I was going to say right. Can you give me three things? Really easy things, whether it's a bit of advice for people to think on, ponder, or some actionable things. So we've started with the clutter is a thing to consider. Are there any other things that you'd want listeners to really take? Yeah, away I think I think you know,
1: understanding the importance of light, both daylight and artificial light. I think that's a, a quick also way to change how a room feels is to understand and harness the power of, of light. And then thirdly, I think we need to get cooking more. I think I, I can see the majority of people in, in the UK wish there were more family and and and, and family dinners and, and, and dinner parties with, with friends. So we need to get cooking more. We need the artichokes. <laughs> uh, we need the hospice shelf. And we need the, 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 the list of what's in your freezer on your phone. Um, but I think also just starting to observe when you are in different places, whether that's the home of your friends or family or in public places how does this place make me feel? Because where you are, the surroundings, your environment, the design of a place will impact how you feel. So, so start to observe that and then consider, okay, what can I copy from this room where I feel good at home? Um, and, and start with the, the simple things, start with the cheap things. Um, so, so yeah, that would be my advice.
0: I love it. It's always such a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much for coming back on the show, listeners. The link to the book, in fact, all of your books will be in the show notes, and I'll also link to Mike's uh, social media and put the link into that museum so that uh, anyone heading to CPH can go and uh, hang out there and go and (laughs) and add their post it of uh, what 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 happiness means to them. Thank you so much for coming back, Mike. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Emma.
1: It's always a pleasure to talk with you.
0: Thank you so much for listening. Why not become a patron of The Emma Gunn Show today? For just £3 a month, you can enjoy episodes of the podcast ad-free and in video. That's just £3 less than a cup of coffee for a whole month of the show. Your support means I can keep creating the podcast and also invest in production and creation of bonus content for you to enjoy. To become a patron, all you have to do is head over to patreon.com forward slash The Emma Show now.